Hello and welcome back to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ollie Brock. As our Aliens issue continues, we bring you an interview with Philip Alterman, a writer and editor at The Guardian. His piece, The Bog Standard, an extract of a forthcoming non-fiction book about Anglo-German meetings, is in the issue Aliens, which you can buy now on our website or in bookshops. In the piece, Philip is 16 and has just arrived from Germany in England with his family. I started by asking Philip what the phrase bog standard means to a Brit and how he first came across it. I should say that um, I, was, I was born in, uh, in Germany. I, I am German originally um, and I moved to, to England when I was 16 and uh, I went through a sort of phase then of trying very hard to, uh, to sound British and uh, trying to pick up lots of uh, typically sort of British um, phrases um, and bog standard was one of those um, which you know uh, means you know, something that's average run of the mill uh, not particularly good um, but uh, uh, this um, piece that I've written for um, for Granta is sort of I guess uh, an, an investigation into what what the phrase where, where it might come from um, and there was I was particularly intrigued by one theory which um, says that it's a phrase that comes from the um, uh, sort of uh, manufacturing business in the 60s and actually is an acronym meaning British or German standard. Which is a mark of excellence, isn't it, rather than averageness? Yes, which doesn't really make sense. Um, uh, and so I was sort of trying to get my head around that. So indeed, we're going to hear another theory of how the phrase might have come about now. Philip's going to read from the beginning of his piece. The day we moved into our new English home in 1997, my father walked up to the living room window and very slowly pushed open the lower ledge. Ein Seschwendel, hast du sowas schon mal gesehen? Had I ever seen anything like that? He let go of the brass handle. The ledge stayed in position, drawing an involuntary whistle from my father, followed by a grunt and a nod of the head. This acoustic code was well known in the family, a telltale sign that my father was admiring the robustness of a piece of furniture or machinery. The hung sash window, my father explained, was a masterpiece of British craftsmanship, a complex pulley system of weights and counterweights hidden elegantly in the window frame, centuries old and yet still state of the art. To him, the oblique charm of the sash window typified the appeal of our new home. It might have been small, smaller than the house my parents had been able to afford in Germany, but it made ingenious use of the little space it had, creating a through-the-looking-glass effect whereby the internal space was larger than what you expected from the outside. We were charmed by our new English home, its nooks and crannies, its eccentric use of stairs and its damp bathroom carpets. Like most Northern Europeans, we were dedicated Anglophiles, which to say we were practically half English before we made the move. Tea drinkers, shortbread nibblers, watchers of non-subtitled BBC comedies. When my father was offered a position at the London office of his company, it was a chance to complete the metamorphosis. My parents were ambitious. Within weeks of our arrival, my father started demanding fried bacon and beans on toast for breakfast. My mother tried to hand it a Sunday roast. I was encouraged to take up cricket, but the road to Englishness wasn't always smooth. We soon discovered that the sash window had an irritating habit of rattling in the frame each time an aeroplane passed overhead, which was frequent. We lived in an Heathrow flight path. One or two of the windows didn't rattle, they had been painted shut, which was just as irritating. Cleaning a sash window proved to be difficult, if not impossible, because you couldn't reach the area where the two sheets of glass overlapped. After the summer, a neat rectangle of filth 
had crystallised in the middle of the two panes. When winter came, we had to move the sofas away from the windows to avoid the draught that sneaked through the gaps. Other features we had originally admired began to grate. My mother's key snapped in the lock of our front door, and several days were spent wondering why no one had thought of equipping the door with a handlebar, thus taking the pressure of the key on opening. There was an awkward encounter with a plumber who spent a week trying to fix a burst pipe before breaking down in tears and admitting that he didn't have a clue what he was doing. My parents still loved England, but now with a slightly desperate edge. Cans of bitter appeared in the fridge overnight. Bags of salt and vinegar crisps invaded the kitchen cupboard. One evening, my father returned from work, brandishing a fold-up roller scooter, and declared to my mother's bewilderment that he would from now on make the journey to his office on two wheels. That was what English people did. They were eccentric. But something wouldn't click into place. A home, with which we should by now have been familiar with, remained stubbornly strange. Nowhere was this more true than in a bathroom. Using an English bathroom, if you're used to German bathrooms, was... I imagine how it felt to have been struck down by a severe nervous disease. The most basic things suddenly felt unfamiliar. There were two taps, for example, one for hot water and one for cold. The cold water was freezing, the hot water was boiling. Right here was a Puritan manifesto against the luxuries of modern living. The invention of the mixer tap had been stubbornly shunned. It took me years to internalise the hand-washing routine that I can now perform in my sleep, criss-crossing my soapy hands between the two jets of water or regulating the water pressure with my wrist. Back in those days, I used to keep a little booklet with words and phrases that I'd picked up at school or on the bus home. Between the words acquiescence and boogle, there was a hastily scribbled entry which read bog-standard, average quality, virgin on poor. I remember how much sense that word made to me at the time, for the standard of English bogs really was below par. One crystal clear December morning, a year after we'd moved into a new home, something finally cracked, physically and metaphorically. I walked into a living room to find that the overnight frost had left an enormous fissure across the lower part of the previously revered sash window. Enough was enough, my father announced. We needed new windows. Not any old bog standard window, but tilt and turn. German standard. At that point, I had a brainwave. For my suggestion, my father contacted a local window fittings company owned by the father of one of the boys at my new school, Sam West, who wore dark skater shoes and smoked cigarettes behind the sports hall. Workmen turned up at our house, fitted new windows and left. But instead of becoming my new best friend, Sam started to ignore me at the bus stop. It was another two years before I found out why. After Sash had given way to tilt and turn, my father had written a letter to Sam's dad. Thank you for replacing our windows. However, it has to be said, in Germany, everything is much more efficient. <laughs> Thanks very much, Philip. It's a lovely image of a, a studious youngster arriving abroad with the notebook there and you probably learned acquiescence about 10 years before the average Englishman. Um, You've got very clear memories of it all. Did you always know that you'd write about it? No. I mean, I've, I've always been, I think, since, you know, since I've been in England, I've sort of been obsessed with um, the history of relations between the two countries. And uh, uh, I got very obsessed with writers who'd moved um, 
know, either way, or sort of uh, written travel books about about the other country, um, just because it made me feel uh, slightly less like a, a you know a, a, an isolated instance and something more of a part of a grander tradition of uh, Anglo um, sort of British exchanges. Memories aren't uh, they're I mean they're not always clear, and in a way that that it helps for I think writing about writing sort of memoir of, of this type it sometimes help actually if, if they're not that clear they're often there's sort of uh, flashes of, of, of clarity but uh, a lot of it is a bit blurry and it's okay if you slightly change the story then <laughs> it would be, be good to hear a little bit about the book because you've reminded me there that you quite neatly uh, don't talk about yourself in a lot of it I mean I know that that piece is Mm-hmm. quite focused on your arrival but uh, do you mind just saying a bit about how the book is put together because it's hung around quite a quite a sort of elegant complex even peg isn't it yeah i should say this piece is sort of part of a of a book that i'm writing which which is um part of partly a memoir but i, I felt a bit self-conscious about writing a memoir when i felt like i hadn't you know uh, quite enough there wasn't quite enough in my own life story to really merit a book yet but um so each chapter is sort of, um, to an extent, is a story of my, you know, sort of of a, a young German person arriving in, in Britain and, and and trying to get their head around the differences between the two countries. But also, it's it's a sort of snapshot of a historical, real meeting that happened between um, uh, two people, a German and a, an English person. Um, and so there are sort of. Um, uh, anecdotes of of encounters between footballers uh, philosophers uh, artists uh, politicians and and so on mm, you've got a Dorno meeting aj Ayer. uh yeah kevin keegan uh, and bertie Vogts, who met in the european cup final in 1990 uh, uh, 1977 um uh, there's a story of um a famous uh english comedy sketch which has been very successful in germany which involved a meeting between English comedian Freddie Frinton and the uh, now forgotten but then very popular uh, German um, game show host uh, uh, Peter Frankenfelder um, uh, and uh, my sort of personal favourite is a meeting between uh, the German Dada artist uh, Kurt Schwitters and uh, a you know, rather obscure um, British uh, landscape um, gardener very idiosyncratic. The the tone of this particular piece is quite light, but in the preface of the book, you hint at some much darker images and how um, some of the more prominent images in the public sphere around the time you moved were a neo-Nazi at a protest and a very violent footballer. And I think it must have been quite a nervous thing arriving. Was it? Was there an antagonistic atmosphere? Um, I think I'd... I was sort of um, geared up for, um, not particularly for very uh, warm welcome. I mean, the 90s were uh, pretty bad for Germany's public image um, because there had been, you know, post-reunification, uh, there had been a lot of um, news stories in the international press about uh, the, the rise of the far right in, in East Germany in particular. There had been attacks on, uh, on, on foreigners. Um, and the sort of the image of the ugly German had had been, I think, very prominent, um, and so I, I was sort of aware that that was what I would be seen as uh, the sort of ugly German. But um, and I'm, I'm, I think it's fascinating that the, sort of the 90s were, that I think, in many ways, a low point 
in in Anglo-German relations, and arguably worse so than than the the sort of you know, the thirties or forties, where of course we had a, a a big war, but maybe people were actually still uh, meeting each other, and um, uh, it was it was maybe a little bit li less clear cut than it has beca became in the aftermath of of, of the Second World War. Um, but I mean, I think the main the main thing I wanted to do with this book was write a book about Anglo-German relations, which really isn't a book about the Second World War or the First World War, but, um, you know, uh, uh, the various ways in which we interact and compare, um, which don't actually relate. I mean, you know, you can trace a lot of things back to the Second World War, especially, you know, about, about everything that's happening in Germany and about the way the Germans think, but um, there are also plenty of things which relate to... Um, you know, just more everyday habits um, and beliefs, which you know might might actually come from often come from sort of uh, cultural ideas, you know, from the nineteenth century, but also you know are just more sort of um, contemporary phenomenon and actually don't have anything to do with um, uh, what happened um, sort of in the in the thirties and forties at all. Mm. Speaking of that interaction, the most obvious and first point that one comes across in the one that you do in the piece is language. You make um, an interesting point about German being perceived as ugly when you arrive mm -hmm. um, and you are very conscientiously uh, learning English. How did that affect you when you arrived? And you're obviously a very, very fluent English speaker now. Do you feel more comfortable in one language or the other? Uh, could you write in German, do you think? Um, I... Um... I tried very, I think, you know, self-consciously not to sound German, and uh, and then, you know, I mean, I I haven't been really back. I mean, I've, I've, I've visited Germany again, but I've I've lived in uh, in England for you know thirteen years now, and while I can sp still speak German, um, it's sort of become probably slightly um, uh, my my second language in a way now because I. I learned to, um, you know, I went to university here, you, and sort of my learning to where you learn to write essays and so on. So that's something that I, I there's a register that I don't have in German anymore. So I, I occasionally still write for the German press, but um, but I, I find that it doesn't come quite as natural anymore as it used to. And uh, my mum um, makes a lot of fun of me when I when I get. Um, German and English words mixed up, like um, the German word Rente uh, means pension, uh, and it sounds like the English word rent, which is the German word for that is Miete. Anyway, it causes plenty of um, confusion. <laughs> a lot of the piece is, or part of a, chap uh, a chapter of the book, in fact, is about this car engineering question, which you mentioned in terms of the origin of bog standard. And I've been trying to think about a link between car engineering and literature. Funnily enough, one was provided in an, uh, in an interview you did with Hans Magnus Enzensberger, if I'm pronouncing that right, in which he told you that uh, German authors or German literature was like car engineering, the German car engineering, in that there was a core competence, but nothing that really stands out, um, which is surprising given a lot of the 20th century great names that we're all familiar with. Do you agree with him? Uh, yeah, that was funny when, I mean, I, I just sort of finished writing this um, this piece for Granta when I then had the chance to interview Hans Magnus Enzensberger, who's sort of one of the great men of letters of um, uh, of German literature, and he came up with this uh, this, you know, this analogy where he said German novels are like German cars, 
Uh, I think he's probably being a bit harsh, both on German literature and on German cars. Uh, I think, yeah, German cars are... Um, outstandingly good. Outstandingly good, but but perhaps um, perhaps not exciting. And that was always... Um, uh, I mean, if you look at the story of um, British cars like the you know, like the Mini or the, the Morris Minor, they sort of they're very good at creating a sort of mythology and a, and a story, and some, they're somehow exciting in spite of the fact that they're not actually that well produced. Um, they sort of managed to create a myth around them that, in a way, a lot of the German cars don't even try to, or maybe just can't. I mean, the the, the Beetle is an interesting. German car because it was the one car that sort of had a story and had a um, you know something friendly. Whereas, um, I mean, I've never been particularly interested in, in cars, and for, I, I mean, I can sort of tell a Mercedes from a BMW, perhaps. But uh, you know, when it comes to telling a Volkswagen from a, um, a, a sort of an Audi from a, a an Opel, I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of they're just very good machines. But it's it's more what's inside than than actually um, how they present themselves outside. What is that story of the Volkswagen Beetle? Perhaps not everybody knows it. Um, well, the, the the Volkswagen Beetle, um, and this is sort of a story partly which uh, comes up in, in this um, article in, in Granta, um, is uh, it was it was a car that was originally, the prototype was um, conceived, probably um, nicked from, from a Czech manufacturer um, bef- uh, before the Second World War um, and it was sort of meant to be the, the Nazi car really I mean Hitler thought this would be the car that um, you know the German nation could could buy very cheaply it was um, uh, going to be called the Kraft durch uh, Freude Auto um, and then um, you know that, that never happened because then the war came along and they had to build other things but um uh, afterwards, it was um, picked up again, and, and it's another beautiful story of, uh, of Anglo-German relations because it nearly didn't happen because uh, a, um, the, the factory in Wolfsburg, um, a, a bomb had, um, had landed in sort of one uh, right in the centre of the production works, um, but only the British um, uh, army then came in and removed that bomb. And which meant that the factory was um, remained intact, and then they were able to produce these cars initially for um, only really for the, the the British forces, but they and they used it to sort of clear up rubble. But turned out to be a really really good car, and uh, um, you know um, fairly robust for for something which you know, now now it doesn't look like a robust car. It looks like a very sort of cheap car, but um, became a big success story and sort of in a way symbolises the, the sort of the, the speed by which Germany then managed to recover after the war um, economically. The, the thing that's in Germany is known as the Wirtschaftswunder or the economic miracle and, and in many ways the, the, the story of the Beatles sort of sums, sums that up. With the happy story of uh, taking a bomb out of the factory for yes. Anglo-German relations. Yeah. What are you working on yourself at the moment apart from this book it's a interesting piece of non-fiction. Do you writing any fiction? Um, no. <laughs> um, I've always sort of um, I've never really tried to write fiction. Even though I would say that this book probably isn't. You know, it's um, it's such a big subject, Anglo-German relations, that I felt I'm not a historian, and to sort of try and write it as a his, as a sort of authoritative history wouldn't wouldn't work. 
and nor is it really a sort of investigative piece because it's you know it's simply too big a story and there's nothing to sort of get your teeth into so it does probably have elements of sort of i mean i i think of it as as a sort of narrative uh a narrative history so there is uh, there are arguably elements of sort of where i'm trying to write it like like a sort of um more like a novel than, than a sort of straightforward history so that i mean i like the idea of um uh, I, I really like this uh, writing about meetings because they give you something uh, so they have a narrative momentum there's there's the sort of initial meeting and, and then the possibility that people might get on on and often they uh, they don't and so there's a sort of um, there's a structure to it um but i've never yeah i've never i mean I'm, i think i'm i heart I'm, I'm more i'm always i will always be more of a non-fiction writer than a fiction writer and there's there's your encounter with the whole of britain there's the as the core of that, isn't there? Yes, yeah, which is, um, yeah, um, which I think after a year, and this is sort of the, the, the uh, piece that's in Granta sort of only really takes you initially up to the, um, the first sort of year after year, you know, it was, a, it was one of, an encounter that I thought was, wouldn't turn out that well <laughs> because I, I didn't feel I'd made many friends and uh, uh, thought this country was quite strange and, and, and in many ways sort of very different to, to what I, I expected it to be. But um, yeah, it was a happy ending. <laughs> are you are you the Englishman that you were aspiring to become? <laughs> well, um, uh, I'm. I said, well, I, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think I say in the piece, I feel a bit sort of like a, uh, there's a story of um, uh, um, as well as the 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 beetle um, the the. The mini has a sort of Anglo-German history, more recent, um, because it was sold to uh, to BMW um, uh, at the beginning of uh, the, the last century, um, and uh, so it was sort of um, gutted out, and they put in a, 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 a basically a German car inside um, the, the cover of a, of a very English car, um, and then sometimes, I mean, as the same piece, I feel a little bit like. Like that, and that I've uh, sort of uh, got spare parts from from from, uh, from both countries now. Um, German engineering, British design, yeah, perfect hybrid. Yes. <laughs> Is it too early to ask when we can look forward to seeing the book? Um, well, uh, hopefully uh, in 2012. Um, I'm uh, about to finish it. Hopefully, uh, he says uh, um, next month, and uh, then hopefully it'll be out and uh, published by Faber in um, sort of. Uh, first half of um, uh, 2012. Much look forward to it. Philip Oldsman, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast feed to get all the episodes and look out for the Aliens issue. We'll be celebrating it with the usual week of events. You can see details of that at granta.com slash events. But for now, from me, Ollie Brock, it's goodbye. <laughs>